Hello, good evening, good day, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of Ask Abhijit for the year 2023, the Gregorian year 2023. So we're going to take a bunch of questions today. We're going to deal with some geopolitics, more history today, and maybe even some science, uh, depending on how much time we have. I've selected a whole lot of questions, and let's see how many we can cover. And before we do that, let me see who all is there. Let me greet you all who's in the live chat. I can see the guy, Anshul, Sushant, Arun, Melvin, Zamyate, Sparker, Aditya, Samarth, Acharya, Bante Gupta, Shekhar, CEO of Sigma Grindset, Mukal Manas, Fatty Just Ate, Tripti, Crazy Brain, Sanjay, Joe Stalin, Bhavna, Jay Dikshit, Victores Fortes, Anup Khitani, Sagar, Soviet Union, Arnav Agarwal, Noob Extreme, Konal Puri, Vassal of USA, Darshan, Vineet, Manmat, Anjana, Suhash, Adrish, Aditya Mishra, Unnati and Dugu video, Sachin, Jongjina, Vikrant, Aditya, Pratik, Rishabh, Somnath Abhishek, Shreyansh, Abhay, Idli, Akshat, Aryan Sardesai, Albert Davis, Racy Lion, Durga M, GPSC Library, Asminor, Rustin Cole, Dev Patel, Vin Om Prakash Tanvi, Tourist Acceptable, Rakshasi Raj, <laughs> Physicist, Hello, Ujwal Alpha Pratham, Sushant, Rita Singh, Zamyante, Urvesh, Aviral, Bhavna, Somalia, Sikh Nationalist, Bhavyadi Prathor, Atharva, Divyansh, Mr. Gigachar of India, Anup Vinit, Soviet Union, Father, Father of Pakistan, Kushi Rani, Adrish, uh, and lots and lots and other people, Vassal of USA, Aryaman, Somnath, Banti, Karthik, Priyanshi, Mukul, and lots of people. Thank you all for being on this live stream. So let's get into the questions without any further ado. What are the questions? Let's see. Rohan says, did you achieve all your goals you decided to at the, uh, at the start of 2022? I did not achieve all of the goals I had uh, thought of achieving at the start of 2022. And the, the what's interesting is that I achieved certain things I had not even thought of achieving. 
achieving in 2022 so as you as see the thing is without a goal you can't score as the as a cliche goes so so you need to have some goals a set of goals not too many not too few a, a certain set of goals and then try to work towards that as as much as you can i obviously worked very very hard i did not uh, take almost any time off i did not there wasn't i wasn't slacking i worked really hard and when you do that new opportunities come your way and new uh achievements sometimes are unlocked like they say in gaming so i did not achieve all of the goals see when you start working towards a goal towards a set of goals over time you realize that certain uh, you need to prioritize more sort of some of them sort of some maybe less maybe keep some for later that always works that's how it always goes so a set of goals is not something you necessarily have to achieve completely it's good to have a set of goals to work to work towards and when you do that you may end up doing things that you had not even thought of doing so that's somehow um, that's the kind of 2022 i had i had a set of goals i have achieved some of those some of those i have kept for later i i, th- I decided not to finish them in 2022 itself and i ended up doing uh, several things that i had not even thought of doing in 2022 overall 22 was a great year uh, very happy with it and i obviously have a a set of goals for 2023 and i am sure that i will not achieve all of those but i most likely will end up achieving something apart from that as well that's how it typically goes as long as you work really hard as long as you are focused and you have a set of goals so that's how it was for me let's take uh, the next question ankit says could you please share your views on the defense deal with cyprus what impact would it have from an international point of view <clears throat> Alka says, "What is the significance of India signing a defense agreement with Cyprus during Dr. Jay Shankar's visit, recent visit to the country?" So let's see what Dr. Jay Shankar and other people have to say about this. Uh, let us see. Uh, let's take a look at some tweets by Dr. Jay Shankar. Um, he says, "Great to meet President of House of Representatives Anita Demetriou. Interesting conversation on our parliamentary practices. Appreciate the." Uh, presentation of commemorative stamps marking amrit mahotsav mahotsav and 60 years of diplomatic ties and uh, some some pictures that go along with that uh, so he met uh, uh, madam anita demetriou who's the president of the house of representatives of Cy- cyprus what else does mr dr jayshankar have to say um apart from that uh, dr jayshankar s- says that uh, he also met with a foreign minister uh yonis kasulides in nicosia which is the capital of cyprus uh, yeah the cyprus the third meeting this year but this one in cyprus comprehensive discussions on bilateral ties cooperation in eu and other multilateral fora also exchanged perspectives on our neighborhood indo pacific west asia and ukraine yeah what else uh, happened let's take a look at what the lady has to say uh, this is in greek so let's translate that machine translation an extreme in an extremely useful discussion with the indian uh, minister of foreign affairs affairs dr jayshankar we examined ways of to further deepen bilateral relations and develop collaborations on critical issues energy migration and climate crisis we informed about turkish provocations against cyprus now th- that's an interesting perspective so there was a discussion about uh, turkish provocations against cyprus yeah uh, now let's take a look at cyprus to understand the the if you don't understand the geography you won't understand the 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 geopolitics so let's take a look at the geography of the region of the country and uh, that of obviously informs us a lot so uh, 
we know where India is. Let's go westwards, westwards. Let's go to the Mediterranean. And in the Mediterranean, in the eastern Mediterranean, you have Turkey. And south of Turkey, there's this island called Cyprus. This is a divided island. In the 1970s, the Turks invaded the island and captured uh, roughly uh, the, the northern third or so of the island. Yeah, there is a line of control, as you can see, the dashed lines. The southern part is still Greek. Historically, it's always been Greek. Historically, even the region of Turkey has been Greek. Yep. So the island is under uh, Turkish occupation right now. Yes, Nicosia is itself a divided city. As you can see, the, the dashed line passes right through the heart of Nicosia itself. Yes. So that's where Dr. Jayashankar went for on his on his recent visit. Turkey... Uh, occupies forcibly the northern uh, roughly one third of the island yes um so the the uh, agreements i i believe three agreements were signed between india and cyprus there was a an agreement on on defense and military cooperation more like a memorandum of agree uh, of understanding so india and cyprus will now cooperate and collaborate from the defense and military perspective, which uh, there are no more specifics available as of today. We know there's, there's an MOU that has been signed between India and Cyprus. But the details of the agreement or the MOU, uh, I, thus far as, I, as, I, as far as I've seen, have not been uh, made specific or made public. So there's going to be going forward some kind of defense and military collaboration, co cooperation between India. Maybe it could involve some arms sales, etc. from India to Cyprus because India is a manufacturer, manufacturer of, of arms. Cyprus is not. Greece is not. So there could be some sales of, of weapons and weapon systems in the future, arms and all that. Maybe there could be visits by Indian naval ships to Cyprus in the future. And, and further, we, we could explore further areas of cooperation. There was also a letter of intent that were, uh, for uh, about migration and mobility that was signed between the two nations, which essentially will facilitate the mobility of, of students and business people and professionals and other people maybe tourist, tourists also, uh, between India and Cyprus. So Cyprus is a nice location in the Mediterranean, Mediterranean Sea, nice beaches, great climate, all that. Yeah, so it's it's a, it's a nice place for Indians to go to, maybe for as tourists, and maybe, maybe even as students, if there are opportunities there. So, so there's some kind of agreement that's been signed about migration and mobility between India and Cyprus, which will essentially help uh, the citizens of both nations. And apart from that, there was there's an agreement that's been signed uh, a framework agreement on the International Solar Alliance, which has been signed by Cyprus. Uh, the International Solar Alliance is an Indian idea. It's been started by India. India is the leader. So now Cyprus has been welcomed in, welcomed into the International Solar Alliance. So these are the three main things that have uh, essentially been done, uh, signed. Yeah. So it's it's a good step forward in in India's relationship with Cyprus and India's overall global diplomacy. And I believe the two sides also discussed various things like the COVID-19 pa pandemic and food security, energy security, which again ties in with the Solar Alliance thing and so on. So as of today, so what would in obviously interest most of us, most people would be the defense and military agreement that's been signed, whatever has been signed. But thus far, we don't have the details. As and when details become available, if they do, then we will speak about it. Uh, but yeah, specifics have not been revealed. That is a good step overall. So we know that India and Turkey don't have the best relationship. India and Turkey have never had the best of best of relationships, right? Ever since 
the partitioning of India by the British, Turkey has more or less consistently taken the side of the Pakistanis. Yeah, and it's mostly been been kind of, to some extent, anti-India. Not very strongly anti-India in the in the in the sense of uh, overt hostilities or any such thing. But yes, overall, their tone, their approach has been more pro-Pakistan and more anti-India. Uh, so, so yeah, that's the so in in the light of that fact, this is. Uh, a good thing that India has done. So it will put in some way or the other some kind of pressure on Turkey. And this could be the beginning of that. So the, uh, before, as far as I know, uh, India and Cyprus haven't had uh, much of any kinds of dealings diplomatically, internationally, bilaterally, etc. So this is a great step forward. And uh, and if India and Cyprus sign a defense and military agreement, it, it the, the, Cypriots, the Cypriots have just one main Opponent, opponent, one main enemy, which is Turkey. Yeah, Turkey holds the, the northern third of the island, and they would like to take over the whole island eventually if they are allowed to. So, if India and Cyprus get into this relationship, it's going to strengthen Cyprus against the Turks. So, essentially, this is an anti-Turkish move. That's how you could see it, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, it, it serves the Turks well. And obviously, India now is uh, a stronger and more uh, confident world power. And we are seeing all of this as a consequence of that. So India is projecting its influence. Right now it's diplomatically, to some extent militarily also. So we also have to counterbalance what the Turks may be doing in various parts of the world. Their attitude has always been anti-India. So this is, a, a, you could say, a good counter to that. And uh, it's also good for the Cypriots, who deserve to be free of Turkish occupation in their island. So yeah. That's what we know thus far of this uh, agreement or deal or whatever it is between India and Cyprus. It's not a deal thus far. It's an agreement. It's a memorandum of understanding, which opens up a lot of possibilities for defense and military cooperation between the two nations in the future. All right. Khosro says, um, can you talk about the Meiji restoration and why it happened and its outcomes? the lesser-known Greek genocide, part of the broader Assyrian, Armenian, and Greek genocide, and my thoughts on the lore of the Lord of the Rings. Okay, uh, look, I'll talk about one thing. Let's talk about the Meiji Restoration. I have uh, referred to the Meiji Restoration on, on occasion, but uh, we've never really discussed in it in as a separate topic. So I'll just throw some light over on it. I will not obviously give a detailed exposition, which would take a lot of time. But yeah, it's... it's uh, so Japan is one of the important nations. If you look at the history of the 19th and 20th centuries, Japan is a major uh, power, major world power. J- Japan transformed itself into a major world power, military power, imperial power. Uh, it, it suffered a defeat in the end of World War II, but then it, it became a U.S. Uh, occupied territory, a U.S. vassal state. And it, it was allowed to transform itself into a major uh, technological and economic power until the 1980s. It's still a major technological power, but uh, economically it's been kind of ruined. So it all kind of kind of begins with the Meiji Restoration. So uh, I I find Japanese history really fascinating. I would encourage all of you to, if you if you are in, so inclined, to read about it. Um, so okay, let's take a let's put Japan on the on on the screen, yes, so that we all know what we are talking about. So Japan, of course, we know it's a small nation, but it's had a very uh, significant influence on on uh, global geopolitics in the past hundred plus years. 
So what was this Meiji Reformation? To understand the Meiji Reformation, you have to go back in time. You can't start with the day the Meiji Reformation starts. You have to go back in time to understand the context. So the Meiji Restoration was essentially uh, something that happened in the, late, in the late 1860s. It was, it all begins with a coup, a coup d'etat. Yeah, it was the overthrow of the feudal Tokugawa shogunate. So, the, so what was the Tokugawa shogunate? So, if you go back a thousand years before today, um, Japan entered what you could say the era of the shogunates. Yeah, the shoguns were the the. Uh, see, Jap Japanese society was was divided into various classes, very similar to Indian society. I mean. Uh, Indian society historically was, uh, if you look at what Megasthenes said, the Greek uh, ambassador to India two and a half thousand years ago, he said Indian society was divided into, into seven classes. And uh, of, of late, we think of Indian society as divided in, into four classes or castes or whatever you want to call it. That's how the British, uh, you know, that's the nom nomenclature. They, they imposed caste system. The Japanese had a very similar thing. So you had uh, you had the, the warrior class. You had the... Uh, the merchant class, you had the agricultural class, and, and so on. Yeah. And you also had the administrators and, and officials and all that. And the, that's the kind of society Japan had, essentially a, a fourfold division of society. So uh, so about a thousand years ago, the samurai, the warriors, became very dominant in Japanese society. And uh, they uh, established what you could call it. It, it happened this way that uh, the shogunate system was established. The shogun was the, the the was the greatest power. One person who is at the head of the entire nation. It is not the emperor. The emperor was just a nominal emperor for all this time. Yeah, the emperor was essentially a figurehead, but the real power lay within the hands of the shogun, who was the ruler of the samurai and, and the entire nation, more or less. So technically, they were under the emperor, but actually they were the real power, the shoguns. So, uh, so J Japan was under this system for a beginning about a thousand or so years ago. Obviously, if you go back in time, there's a whole different story in Japan. There's a significant influence of Indian culture in Japan, which uh, which uh, syncretized itself with the indigenous Shinto traditions. So, the Indian culture that came into Japan came via China. And it's mostly what you would what you what you would call Buddhist culture, but obviously it is not just Buddhist culture. You had all the various Hindu divinities in this, yeah. Um, so, uh, and and Shinto is more like Japanese Hinduism. It, it's 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 it emerged and evolved completely independently in Japan, but it's extremely similar to Japan, uh, to, to Hinduism. There is more, there are more similarities between Shinto and Hinduism than between Hinduism and, and, and its offshoot Buddhism. Anyhow, that's a different story. The th uh, beginning a thousand years ago, we have the shogunate system more or less in Japan. About half a millennium ago, you had the beginning of the European travelers starting to go across the world in their ships. They had acquired this new technology from wherever they acquired. We know where they acquired it from, and so on. So they they began they began the Europeans began uh, circumnavigating the world and and trying to find out what what lies in different parts of the world. And in the eighteenth uh, and nineteenth century, they began to uh, establish their dominance in Asia. We know what the, what the Europeans uh, did to India. We don't need to repeat that. They also overran China to some extent. We had the opium wars and all that. And with the beginning of the European influence in this region, the, the Tokugawa shogunate essentially closed off the nation. 
the nation of Japan to outside forces. So Japan was essentially a incomplete isolation. They adopted a policy of isolating Japan from uh, external influences. So they would they refused to allow European ships to to dock in Japanese ports, the Tokugawa shogunate. Um, they had seen the influence that Christianity brought into Japan. They observed that Japanese citizens who became Christians turned anti-national. That's what they observe. That's what they write. Okay, it's not my opinion. That's what they've written. So they banned the entry of Europeans into into Japan. Uh, if you look, if you read European histories of Japan of this era, they will say there was large-scale persecution of Christians. Yeah, that's what they claim, and so on. So for a couple of hundred years, for about two centuries, Japan was isolated. Japan adopted a policy of isolationism from the world. Then in the 19th century, the Americans started coming to Japan and they refused to go away when they were ordered by the Tokugawa shogunate. They came in big ships with powerful guns, cannons and all that. And when the Tokugawa forces would tell them to go away, they would refuse and they would come and dock and they would, and and I don't know what was the name of the American Admiral, some Perry, William Perry or some Perry or something. He said that I would, I will come back in one year and I, and you better give me a positive response. Otherwise we will, we can, you know, we will, we will not accept your policy of isolationism. We want to trade with Japan and Japan had resources like coal, other things that the Americans wanted, the Europeans wanted. So the Europeans wanted to trade with Japan, and um, so so the Tokugawa policy of isolationism was not going to work forever, and that's why in the 1860s, 1867, 68 or so, there was an overthrow of the Tokugawa shogunate. It was a coup d'état, and it was a bunch of people who did that, um, and they propped up the Meiji emperor, who was a teenager, a young boy, as they as the uh, emperor of Japan and the Tokugawa shogunate was overthrown. This is a coup d'etat. And obviously it was not an easy process. There were rebellions. For some time, the sh- certain sections of the samurai cooperated. Then they realized that the samurai are being uh, essentially wiped out of existence. All their uh, power, all their privileges are going to disappear. So there were rebellions. Yeah, so this goes on for about, 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 about two decades, two, three decades almost. Yeah, the rebellions and all that. And and the real power lay not with the Meiji emperor, but with his cabinet. That's where the real power lay. The Meiji emperor was essentially a figurehead. Uh, so even during the shogunate era, the emperor was a figurehead. Even during the Meiji restoration era, the emperor was more or less a figurehead. The real power lay with the cabinet. So then the shogunate was overthrown. The samurai uh, rebelled. There were two or three rebellions of the, of the samurai. These were eventually crushed. And a new kind of Japan was created, a constitutional uh, imperial state. Uh, and uh, the emphasis was on uh, on importing Western, uh, Western outlook, Western technology. Yeah. But keeping some kind of balance and, and, and preserving Japanese culture to some extent. Yeah. Uh, and there was an attempt to stamp out Buddhism from Japan, which failed. But even today, as a consequence of that, the Japanese people now see Buddhism as an external religion, as something that came in from outside. Before that, it was not seen that way. So they attempted to stamp out Buddhism, that failed, but they brought in a very different outlook. They they essentially, the samurai were crushed and they no longer have any influence in Japanese society since then. Uh, and they ab- adopted a very Western mindset. And it, uh, from this point onwards, Japan becomes... Uh, an imperial power. So they very rapidly modernized 
it, they are very rapidly industrialized. They adopted universal education, which may not have been there before that. They, uh, they adopted a system of conscription and a standing army, which became a very powerful army. Yeah. Um, and the Japanese, in order to, uh, to, the, to gain respect in the eyes of the West, started a policy of imperialism and colonialism. So they essentially uh, started uh, colonizing parts of Eastern China, the Manchuoku region, what is now China, which historically has not been China. So the region east of Japan, they colonized parts of Korea, eventually all of Korea, yeah, occupied that. They occupied Manchuoku as well, present-day Manchuria. And they came into conflict with the Chinese and even with the Russians. So that's a whole story. But uh, so so that's what happened. Uh, that's what the Meiji Restoration was about. It was a coup d'état which overthrew the old feudal system, the samurai system, the shogunate era, the Tokugawa shogunate. It brought in a huge wave of complete uh, modernization of Japan and westernization of Japan. The army, this during the samurai era and the shogunate era, the the warriors were very deeply. Uh, Inculturated, they were they, they had this system called bushido, which is the the samurai code of honor. They were very honorable people. They had a very clear sense of ethics: what could be done, what could not be done. The samurai were were for the longest time eating meat was prohibited in Japan, and, and slaughter of cattle was prohibited in Japan. The samurai were great warriors, but they were mostly vegetarians. You know, that's a strange thing. Um, so all of that was thrown out of the out of the window. And the new army that came into power was a very different force. It was a very westernized force. The the uh, influence of culture, of Dharmic culture, of Shinto culture, all of that was taken out. Yeah, And the army was essentially a western-style modern professional army, which followed the orders of the of their superiors unquestioningly. Yeah. And that is something that led to the, the horrific atrocities that uh, Japan later on went on to perpetrate. Uh, during its its uh, era of expansionism, imperial expansionism, and colonialism, yeah. Um, so that is essentially what the uh, Meiji Restoration was, and uh, the outcomes. So it transformed Japan in, within a couple of decades into an expansionist, colonialist, imperialist power that brought Japan respect in the eyes of the West. They said the Westerners said that, oh my goodness, look at that, Japan is behaving like a civilized nation, just like us. Uh, so maybe that's that's the kind of thing that they, that they wanted, you know. Uh, so yeah, so that's kind of what happened. That was the, what the Meiji Restoration was about. And its outcomes, I will not discuss the other thing because that will take too much time. But it's, uh, yeah, so that's what the Meiji Restoration was about. And it totally transformed Japan, eventually led to the defeat of Japan in World War II and uh, various other things as well. And what you see in Japan today is essentially a direct outcome of a process that was set in motion in the 1860s and 1870s, the Meiji Restoration. Rudrajit says, tensions between Russia and Japan are increasing day by day over the Kuril Islands, the Kuril Islands. As Russia and Japan both are very important for India's geopolitical, economical and military interests. According to you, what should be India's stance on this issue? Interesting question. Um, so let's talk about the Kuril Island dispute. Yeah, um, That's a dispute that's been simmering for about, I don't know, 80 years, 80, almost 80 years. So let's talk about that. So I spoke about the Meiji Restoration just a second ago. Yeah. So during the Meiji, 
major era, even during the Tokugawa shogunate era, uh, Japan had started expanding in various mm. directions. Yeah, and one of the uh, directions it expanded was it was in the north. So Japan had, I believe, uh, this island, the island of Sakhalin, which is now uh, a Russian island, was once a Japanese island. At least the, the the southern half of the island was under Japanese control. And all of the Kuril Islands in the 19th century were under Japanese control. The Kuril Islands are this chain of islands, all right? This here in the middle of the screen is the northernmost Japanese main island of Hokkaido. And north of the island of Hokkaido, we have this island here, Sakhalin Island. And over here, we have the various Kuril Islands. As you can see, it's written here, Kuril Islands. And this goes on all the way up to here until the Kamchatka Peninsula, which is a Russian peninsula. Now, um, in the 19th century, the, the Japanese and the Russians had various agreements. At one point in time, uh, Japan and Russia had decided to uh, share control over the Sakhalin Island. The northern half would be Russian, the southern half would be Japanese. Yeah, the the Russians too had uh, a policy of expansionism. Yeah, Russia obviously, as we know, the capital is has been Moscow, but uh, they expanded eastwards. They also had this uh, policy of settler colonialism, and this entire Eurasian landmass that they, they, that is currently part of Russia was all conquered by the Russians. The peoples who live here are not Russian people. They are they are essentially uh, Tungusic people, Tuvan people, Siberian people, people who have uh, Turkic ethnicity, uh, Mongolic ethnicity, and, and, and so on. Yeah, In the north, you have the Ainu people who live um, in this region, especially in the who have, have historically lived in the Kuril Islands. So, in the middle of the 8th, 19th century, the Russians and Japanese shared Sakhalin Island, and uh, there was an agreement which... Uh, said that Japan could uh, essentially take control of all the Kuril Islands up to the tip of the Kamchatka Peninsula. Yeah, So this situation stood for a very long time. And then the Russians expanded eastwards. They took over Manchuria. And they, uh, they also took uh, control of the uh, port city of Dalian, which is currently part of China. And they established a major port of Vladivostok which is right north of North Korea, right? Now, during the Second World War, Japan, as we know, fought uh, the United States and the Western allies. And eventually, in 1945, uh, Japan was defeated. Japan was defeated. Japan was made to surrender after the twin atomic tests on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yes. So a couple of days after the atomic test on, on, on Hiroshima, the Soviets, so the Soviets and the Japanese had a non-aggression or some kind of agreement, which was due to expire in 1946. In 1946. But at the end of the war, just before Japan surrenders, in 1945 itself, the Soviets launched an invasion of the Kuril Island, just Kuril Island chain, just two days after the atomic test on Hiroshima, the American atomic test on Hiroshima. So the, the, the Japanese were reeling from this disaster and a couple of days, just a few days later, there was another test on Nagasaki. And a week after Hiroshima, the Japanese had to surrender. While this was happening, the Soviets, they broke the non-aggression pact, that whatever treaty they had, and illegally invaded the Kuril Islands. And the Kuril Islands, 
the the inhabitants were all Japanese. So the Russian, the Soviets, very rapidly came all the way south up to up to these islands. What is this island called? Kunashir. What is this one called? It's called Zel- Zelioni. This one is called Shikotan, and so on. So all these islands were taken, were were captured forcibly by the Soviets, and they expelled all the Japanese inhabitants and and uh, relocated them forcibly to to the Japanese mainland. And uh, then the 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 Soviets settled Slavic peoples in these islands in Sakhalin, in the Kuril Islands, mainly Russian and Ukrainian speakers. Yeah. Um, so one could argue that the Soviet invasion of the Kuril Islands was illegal because they had this pact, this non-aggression or whatever pact it was, uh, a peace pact, a peace treaty or whatever it was, it was, which was supposed to last until 1946. So the Japanese had been, they were defeated, the Soviets invaded these islands, etc. Then the Americans imposed certain treaties on the Japanese. The Japanese were forced to sign these treaties. One of these treaties says that the Japanese will relinquish all, all claims on the Kuril Islands. Yeah, that's one of the treaties and various other things as well. As a consequence of all of these things that happened, the Japanese have always claimed that the Kuril Islands, are the, the, the four Kuril Islands up to, uh, I believe the island of Urup. I If not this one, then up to the island of Ethiopia. So they, they claim four Kuril Islands and they said that these islands have been uh, captured illegally by the Soviet Union and now Russia is the is the continuation of the Soviet Union. And as a consequence of that, Japan and Russia, Japan and the USSR never signed a ceasefire, which means that technically World War II is still not over because the ceasefire between Japan and the USSR was never signed and the ceasefire between Japan and Russia has also never been signed. So the Russians, Soviets and now Russians, they they have typically offered Japan control of two islands, two small islands. They said that we will offer you these two islands and in exchange you need to relinquish your claims on all the other islands. And the Japanese have steadfastly refused. That's the situation in the Kuril Islands. Now why is it that these islands are so important? Why is Russia hanging on to these islands which seem to be small and unimportant? It's the same kind of question I get from some very... I mean, some people that what's the big deal about Nehru relinquishing Aksai Chin? What's the big deal? It's just a small piece of territory where nothing grows. That's the kind of silly uh, argument some people make. So understand that every inch of territory has strategic value. And I'll show you why. So the, the Russians, the Soviet Union and today Russia. See, earlier Soviet the Soviet Soviets had, uh, the Russians had access to Dalian port. Dalian is kind of to the south, which means that it doesn't freeze in the winter. If you see Vladivostok, the port of Vladivostok, which is the southernmost port in this region that the, the Russians have, it freezes in winter for, for at least uh, two or three months. I don't remember how much more, how much, but it freezes totally. It, it's, uh, it's, it's ice bound in winter. So the, so the Russian uh, Pacific fleet, uh, it, is, it is based in the vicinity of Vladivostok. Yeah. So it uh, for the Russian Pacific fleet to navigate the oceans, it uh, in in winter it's quite difficult, and uh, for this Pacific fleet, Russian Pacific fleet, to to go into the high seas of the Pacific Ocean, it has to go through several choke points. There are let me show you what choke points exist. You have the island of of, of Tsushima here. So there is the strait, the Korean Strait, 
to the west of Tsushima. There is a different strait, a strait to the right, to the to the east of Tsushima. There is a small strait over here uh, between these islands in Japan. These uh, so South Korea is militarily occupied by the U.S. Japan is under permanent military occupation. Tens of thousands of U.S. troops in both the nations. So these straits are under constant surveillance by the Americans. So anything that happens here, the Americans will know immediately. So if the Soviet or, or later Russian fleet were to try to uh, go into the Pacific Ocean from here, the Americans will know exactly what's happening and that's not an ideal situation. The other straight, straight choke point is here between Hokkaido and, and the, uh, the main island of Japan. That also is obviously under constant US uh, supervision. The other strait is between Sakhalin and Hokkaido, which is kind of, you know, uh, something that the uh, Russians can use. And then you have the Kuril Islands. Now, if the Kuril Islands were to go back into Japanese uh, control, it means that the Americans will immediately establish uh, military bases there. And then they will be able to, to uh, monitor everything the, the Russians are doing. Now, if you go to the northern Kuril Islands, these are very strongly ice-bound in winter. Even the southern Kuril Islands are ice-bound, but the northern islands are ice-bound for at least two months more. So that's why the Kuril Islands are strategically very important. If the Americans take, if the Japanese, which means the Americans take control of, the, of these islands, then the entire so Russian Pacific fleet will be totally uh, hemmed in. It's like the island China, uh, the, the, island, the island chains that the Chinese are so upset about. These island chains ring fence the Chinese Navy and the Americans are able to monitor everything the Chinese do as a consequence. Yeah, So that's why the Kuril Islands are so strategically important for the Russians. Of course, there's also the, the, the question of oil and gas. If you see Sakhalin, uh, the northern north East part of Sakhalin offshore has very significant reserves of oil and natural gas. Yeah, very, very major reserves of oil and natural gas. It's possible that the Kuril Islands also may have significant reserves of oil and natural gas. So why should the Russians give that up? So that is the dispute. That's what the dispute is all about. And after the so after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the Japanese have been upping the ante and uh, making uh, these noises that Kuril Islands is a disputed territory and we want it back. Obviously, at the instigation of the US. And I would say that, you know, if you look at the way history has unfolded, one could say that Japan, that Japan has a very strong claim and a rightful claim on the Kuril Islands. But... But justice, there is no such thing as justice yeah, in, in geopolitics. Whoever holds the islands is the rightful owner. That's how it goes. Might is right. So the Russians have a significant uh, military, uh, a significant military presence on these islands. Yeah, They have anti-aircraft batteries. They have, they have missiles that are installed over here, missile systems. Um, troops as well over here. And there is a significant uh, Russian uh, and Ukrainian-speaking population that has been settled in these islands. So the Russians are not going anywhere. They are not going to give up the claim. and They are not going to give up the islands. And uh, there's not much that the Japanese can do right now, as long as the, the Russians have the military strength and the capabilities to hold on to these islands. And these are very vital and strategically important islands for Russia. So why would they give it up? Now the question, so that's the Kuril Islands dispute. Now Russia and Japan both uh, are important to India in various ways. 
what should India's stance be on the issue? India's stance should be, it's not our concern. It's not our business. Both nations should find a peaceful resolution to the to the debate to, to the to the issue you need to india india would say that japan and russia should sit down and negotiate it and find a diplomatically negotiated solution to the disputed uh, island kuril islands issue no war please don't go to war this is not an era for war that's what we say so that should be india's stance on this issue japan essentially is an extension of the us i it it really it's very unfortunate that the wonderful people of japan are under uh, foreign military occupation for the past almost 80 years it's terrible for them yeah uh, but yeah japan as of today is an extension of the us it's a us vassal state it's under total almost total permanent us military occupation um, so yes, Japan obviously has a significant importance for India. Culturally, we have the very old relationship between India and Japan. And um, so culturally, we are very much alike. Of course, Japan now doesn't have an independent foreign or military policy. So whatever they do is ex essentially what the Americans tell them to do. So that's how it is. So India should stay out of these uh these disputes. It's not India's business. We should exhort both sides to refrain from any warmongering, any violence. And both sides need to sit down at the negotiating table and find a negotiated settlement or solution to this, uh, to this dispute. That should be India's official position on the matter. Mazar says, uh, you always say that G Germany, Japan, and to some extent Italy are under permanent US military occupation. Then why don't we see Germany or Japan's footballers or other renowned figures showing resentment about their country's occupation by a foreign power? Why is it so? You know, there is this uh, very famous Korean rapper called Sai, the guy who sang Gangnam Style. It emerged after, so he released this song called Gangnam Style. It's become a phenomenon maybe the most viewed video on YouTube, billions plus views and all that. He became a global phenomenon. And then it emerged that about 15 or so, I don't know, a decade or so ago, he had made anti-US statements on the record. He's, he's South Korean. And he was made to pub publicly apologize for this and, and express regret for what he had said. Yeah. So it's not like people don't know. Uh, the, the current chancellor of Germany, Mr. Olaf Scholz, as a student, had participated in anti-US protests. But today he's a good boy, and that's why he has been appointed. He has he has changed his opinion. He is now reformed, and he he now has been allowed to ascend to the top position in Germany, which only happens with the with the ascent of the imperial overlord, which is the United States. So it's not like no one knows about this, but you cannot make too much of a noise about this if you know what is best for you in these nations. Um, and mostly, what happens like. About a year or so ago, I spoke about Arminius. Arminius uh, was a German freedom fighter. That time there was no Germany. There were the various uh, Germanic tribes or clans that lived in, in what is now Germany. And they were under the Roman yoke, under Roman occupation. This guy Arminius was the son of, a, of the chieftain of the Cheruski or some tribe. Yes. And he was taken hostage by the Romans and he was brought up as a Roman prince, as a Roman, uh, as part of the Roman nobility. So it was assumed by the Romans that he would be loyal to the to, the, to Rome. So he uh, 
was given charge of a major uh, he became he he rose in the military ranks and then he was uh, deputed to germany as part of the roman occupying forces he switched sides and he uh, defected to his people he raised uh, he kind of unified certain coalitions uh, he created a unified coalition of various germanic tribes he taught them the roman way of warfare he understood how the roman war machine worked and in the battle of teutoburg forest which is which happened i think in in, in 9 or 8 ad in the battle of teutoburg forest the germans under arminius were able to annihilate three roman legions and this set off a a chain of events that within two centuries would end in the uh, in the decline and destruction of the western roman empire yeah it took a couple of centuries but after this event things started changing gradually so arminius is the first great german freedom fighter you could say he fought against imperial occupation and this he should be a major figure in germany but and and in, in the year 2009 or whatever it was or 2012 i don't remember which year you can look it up that was the 2000th anniversary of the battle of teutoburg forest in which the germans defeated the, the romans and yet almost nobody celebrated this in germany why because this is not this was not taught at the time in germany's history textbooks so if you are taught lies you will not know what's happening you will not know what's happening yeah germany's constitution has been written under the us under us supervision I, i'm not sure how many germans know this it all depends on what you are taught whatever you are taught as a kid you you hold on to that emotionally and in the and later if somebody tells you something else you will you will react emotionally and say you're wrong you're telling lies for the longest time in india children were taught that the moguls the turkic occupiers of india the brutal barbarians who bled india for 700 years we were taught that these moguls were were the greatest saviors of india and, and they were they were good for india akbar was great and so on even today if you tell a kid or, or a young person that akbar was actually a brutal killer then they will they will you know accuse you of trying to rewrite history and all that so it doesn't matter what's happening as long as the overall narrative by is 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 that your nation is free and all that then people will not know about it all you have to do is is to have a certain kind of of narrative that is propagated through the education system and the same narrative should also be reinforced by the leaders of the nation and by the media and the media in japan is controlled and in south korea and germany is controlled by pro western forces and the leaders are western puppets so what do you expect yeah even in pakistan i i know for a fact that uh, in pakistani textbooks uh, glorify and eulogize uh brutal barbarians like gori and ghaznavi yeah who did so much harm to the ancestors of the pakistani people and yet today's pakistanis consider them to be like uh, next to god yeah the gori and ghaznavi so that's how it is that's how it goes the power of power of propaganda the power of misleading people and distorting history history through the education system through the media and through your leaders that's how it goes so that's why you don't see any of this happening some people know about it but they are suppressed and marginalized that's how it goes unfortunate uh daniel nicholson says could you please enlighten us about the secret nu- secret nuclear city at chalakere in chitradurga district why was the west so alarmed by its construction in the not so distant past interesting uh, question you ask yes interesting question let's take a look uh, let me put that on the screen what is the whole deal about the secret uh, nuclear city 
इंशाल्लाह करे सो दिस इज एन आर्टिकल फ्रॉम ए व्हिच ईयर इज दिस दिस इज डिसेंबर 16 2015 राइट दिस इज अबाउट 7 इयर्स अगो 7 व्हाटएवर इट इज 6 7 8 इयर्स 6 7 इयर्स अगो इंडिया इज बिल्डिंग अ टॉप सीक्रेट न्यूक्लियर सिटी टू प्रोड्यूस थर्मो न्यूक्लियर वेपन्स एक्सपर्ट्स से दीस वेपन्स कुड अपग्रेड इंडिया एज अ न्यूक्लियर पावर एंड डीपली अनसेटल्ड पाकिस्तान एंड चाइना सो व्हाट्स योर प्रॉब्लम फॉरेन पॉलिसी इट्स अ यूएस पब्लिकेशन या so that's a whole long story about this yeah and uh, they they speak about various indians who are against this you know uh, um, local villagers who have been evicted apparently from their from their lands and all that uh, it also kind of reveals certain indian insiders who are working against the interests of india who are working against in the indian government let me show you an example there is this person called leo saldanya founding member of some advocacy uh, uh, organization who writes about uh, how you know how tribal communities and local farming communities are being walled off and so on these are all lies there are lots of aspiring zelenskys within india who are very happy to help foreign forces undermine india's national interests yeah so in this article this uh, place is being portrayed as a future uh, nuclear city a top secret nuclear city to produce thermonuclear weapons right so that's what the west was apparently so alarmed about they don't want india to make any progress obviously we know that so what exactly is going on in chalakere let's take a look yeah because see yeah okay let me put that on the screen so first of all please understand i am showing you information that's available in the public domain i'm not showing you any secret or sensitive information anybody who has access to the internet can see this okay so i'm not showing you anything uh, any 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 classified information let's take a look at chalakere where is it so let's uh, locate this on the map it's in karnataka in in uh, peninsular india in southern india yes so let's go to uh, the the town the, the region of chalakere what's what's going on here let's uh, put the satellite view on the screen and very soon you will know what's happening here so north west of chalakere we have the chitradurga aeronautical test range zoom into it you will see that uh, there is this place as you can see there's a runway and there are some uh, drdo facilities over here yeah um, so that's what it is so this was not a secret nuclear city this was they were building an aer- aeronautical test range and this is information that anybody can see so i'm not showing anything classified or secret or sensitive all right this is all out in the open let's uh, just briefly take a look at the dist- how long this runway is from tip to tip it's about 2.87 kilometers long so it's a it's a reasonably uh, long runway and there's a shorter i don't know it's no there's just one runway over here so essentially this is a place where you can uh, where the drdo etc the indian government and the drdo they most likely would be testing uh, experimental aircraft and so on i believe the drdo ghatak was tested over here possibly if i am not mistaken yeah so this is this is uh, where india tests this is one of the places where india tests uh, aircraft that are under development that's what it is it's not a secret nuclear city as uh, was being alleged by the west and uh, why was the west so alarmed because they don't want india to make any progress of any kind they want india to to remain a mediocre middling unambitious zero future 
third world nation. They don't want India to become a major world power, but unfortunately, it's not working for them. Yeah. So that's what the Chalakere uh, secret nuclear city or whatever was about. It was not a nuclear city. It was, it's, it's already become an aeronautical test range. That's what it is. Ah, Samad says, what would be Tajikistan's role in case of India-China war, considering the fact that India has air bases in Tajikistan? China also has a dispute with Tajikistan. Yes, China also has a dispute with Tajikistan. Let's once again go to the map to understand what is happening. Give me a second. All right, let's put that on the map. Once again, where's the map? Where's the map? Here's the map. Here's the map. All right. So in case some of you may not be aware, in case, one second, let me do this again. Yes, here we are, the map. So in case some of you are not aware, Tajikistan is almost India's neighboring country. Yeah, as you can see, so, so some of this territory is currently temporarily illegally occupied by Pakistan, Gilgit, Baltistan, uh, Pakistan occupied Jammu and Kashmir. Um, but right across the Wakhan corridor of, of Afghanistan, we have the nation of Tajikistan, which is very close to India. Very, it, it is adjacent to Afghanistan and very close to Pakistan. Now, what air bases are we referring to? There are two. One is Aini. Aini air base. Let's see where it is. Zoom in. Boom. There we are. So let's see. Uh, let's orient ourselves. As you can see, it is in the western part of Tajikistan, if you can see it. Yeah, as you can see, India is over here, not, not far away. Uh, Afghanistan, Kabul is not far and Pakistan is not far. So let's now zoom in and see what kind of uh, information we can see visually. See the satellite view, there we are. So this is a reasonably long and significant, reasonably uh, respectable airbase. Let's see the length of the runway tip to tip. Uh, Oh, wow. 3.23 kilometers. That is extensive. Yeah. And if we zoom in, see, once again, I'm not showing anything that is secret. This is all open source information. Anybody can see this. So there are various installations. You can see a whole bunch of helicopters. These look like these look like Russian-made uh, MIL helicopters. There are attack helicopters also, apparently. Yeah. We're not sure which one, what model it is. Uh, yeah, interesting helicopter. This looks like an Indian uh, Dhruva helicopter, if I am not mistaken. Yeah. And there are these aircraft over here. These look like Sukhois of some kind. These clearly are swing wing aircraft. Uh, so this is the airbase, one of the airbases we are talking about. It is jointly operated by India and Tajikistan, which is the other airbase. Let's, uh, this, the other one is called Farkhor. Farkhor airbase. Let's see where that is. So once again, let's orient ourselves first by zooming out. So this is closer to the Afghan border and closer to Pakistan. Now let's zoom in and see what Farkhor airbase looks like. So this doesn't look like much. We don't see a, a proper runway. I don't know from when this image was taken and you don't see any aircraft either. Anyhow, this airbase air is also said to be jointly operated by India and Tajikistan. Now, let's go back to Aini, all right? One second, and see the distance. Aini Airbase, and we'll zoom out. So I want to see the distance between Aini Airbase and let's say, and let us say, Rawalpindi. Where is our uh, Rawalpindi? So let's take a, a bird's eye distance, measure distance. 
it's about 680 kilometers straight line now we know, it is it is said that at ini airbase we have certain uh, we have a number of indian sukhoi 30 mki fighter planes and various other uh, assets of ours aerial assets air force assets so these two air bases farkhor and ini are not aimed at china the intention is to uh, the the objective is not china it is pakistan the straight line distance from aini to rawalpindi is 680 kilometers the sukhoi 30 uh, has a capability of mark 2 speed twice the speed of sound but let's say it's it's cruising at mark 1.5 let's say yeah um if you if you if you calculate that's that that's about 23 kilometers per minute so within a matter of minutes the sukhois could be close to rawalpindi and actually the sukhois don't even need to be over pakistani territory they just need to overfly afghanistan and launch missiles if need be so the indian uh, air bases in tajikistan are not aimed at china they are aimed at pakistan and like you say tajikistan has not tajikistan china has a border dispute with, with tajikistan and google obviously always shows this it shows a dashed line which uh, kind of confirms china's claims on tajikistani territory google somehow is very is is very accommodative of chinese perceptions even though google is banned in china very surprising don't you see don't you say um so the question is what would be tajikistan's role in india china war considering that india has air bases in tajikistan tajikistan's role in a potential future india china war would be that of this is not my concern this is not my problem this is not my business it's not my responsibility tajikistan will want to stay out of this yeah because china is right next door to tajikistan and they don't want the, to feel the chinese wrath they this entire situation of the two indian air bases in tajikistan is entirely aimed at pakistan yeah in a matter of minutes india can send air, air force assets close to pakistan or if required deep within pakistani territory so that's what it is about there are no major chinese targets near tajikistan i mean kashkar khotan aksu etc are not major military installations the in military installations that we are interested in with respect to china are the ones in tibet lhasa and and shigatse airport in ningchi and so on yeah the chinese have a uh, military assets and installations in tibet close to india the india tibet and, and, and nepal tibet borders these are the ones that concern us these are very far away from the indian air force bases in tajikistan so the tajikistan air bases are entirely focused on pakistan that's what it is Okay, Kostub says in your Indian interest video, you said that from the Ukraine conflict, India should learn and focus more on drone technology and missile systems. We also we should focus on cyber warfare, but we are still waiting to induct even one indigenous drone. Meanwhile, Turkey and Iran are drone export leaders. What can we learn from, learn from these two nations? Excellent question. So yeah, let, let's not go back into the lessons of the Ukraine war. I said that we need to focus on 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 drone technology. no you don't develop drone technology over a matter of of 6 months or 2 years take some time for these technologies to to iteratively mature you have to start from scratch essentially yeah and then you slowly build on whatever you've learned and you make better and better drones there are several generations of drones look at the generations of indian missiles we started with a very very basic and very primitive rudimentary prithvi 1 missile which is a liquid fueled missile 
now it is being replaced by the by the uh, agni p missile or so something yeah so india started uh, deploying indigenous missiles in the early 1990s now we are in the 2020s the missiles that we are now deploying are incredibly sophisticated compared to those primitive missiles that we had it took 30 40 years for the missile program and technology in india to really mature and become very sophisticated india has a very sophisticated missile ballistic missile and other missile program today ballistic missiles cruise missiles and all and and there are certain missiles that we don't we may not even be aware of yeah so it took about 40 years for the program to become really cutting edge and very sophisticated the same goes for india space program we started with very uh, rudimentary rockets now we have some of the best rocket technology in the world yes so when it comes to drones let's talk about turkey right you 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 referring to turkey we also refer to iran let's take the example of turkey yeah so the turks are now one of the uh, leaders in drone technology so so they have this company called baikar um which manufactures a, a bunch of drones baikar is a private Tur- turkish defense technology now once again statutory warning wikipedia is not always reliable i am just using it for convenience uh especially when it comes to history it's not reliable so uh, this company was founded baikar in eight, in 1984 as baikar makina yeah by ozdemir bayraktar it was founded in 1984 in and so it's been around for a long long time and they they have a strong uh, foundation and background in in uh, precision machinery and all these things automotive constructing automotive automotive parts engines pumps and spare parts so they have a very strong understanding of foundation in, in this mechanical engineering now in the early 2000s the son of of ozdemir bayraktar selchuk he uh, was studying in mit i believe yeah uh, no he was in uh, he completed his masters in mit etc uh, so he returned to turkey in 2007 cutting his phd sh- studies short uh, short and he started developing drone technology so the company already had a very strong foundation in mechanical engineering and all these things and this guy came back in 2007 to work with his daddy with his father and within 5 years they started developing very uh uh capable drones then his brother younger brother or i don't know old, his brother haluk also joined the company and so essentially the company had a very strong foundation in mechanical engineering from 2007 onwards they started focusing on drones and today in 2023 they have some of the best drones in the world let's take a look at some of the drones that they have uh let's put that on the screen so it takes time to mature you iteratively mature this so they have a bayraktar mini uav the tv1 the tv2 the akinchi the tv3 and the kizilelma uh, so that's the, the the drone family that they have let's take a look at the tv2 which is one of the more sophisticated drones that they have it's being used in ukraine and other places yes so this this took them a lot of time to develop this kind of drone yeah so that is the tb2 which is one of the best drones they have and now they are developing the red apple the kizilelma so the kizilelma uh, we don't see images of that right now let's try to google some images of the kizilelma this is a drone that is still under development this has it incorporates some elements of stealth technology you can see from the shape that it it is uh, stealth capable to a certain extent so it's taken them decades 
to reach this position. It's not something you can do in two, two years, three years, five years. Yeah, it takes time. You need a strong foundation of, of, uh, of technology to be able to do this. Even the Chinese have a whole lot of drones they've been developing for the third, past 30, 40, 50 years. They have been testing all kinds of drones for, for decades. India has only now started focusing on drone technology. It takes time for this to develop and mature. We need to pour in substantial funds into this. And it's it's wrong to have, I mean, it's it's fine. See, in, in Turkey, there's just one, one company that's doing this. In China, there are a lot of uh, different institutes that are working on drone technology. We need to have funds and we need to have the right minds. You have to attract the right minds and then build on whatever you've learned. So it takes time. I would say it would take India about five to 10 years to develop a, a stealth capable drone. We already are developing a stealth drone, a flying wing drone called the DRDO Ghatak. It was earlier called the Aura. We have certain other projects under development. I think that India can accelerate the production of these technologies. We have DRDO, we have uh, various... Uh, See, DRDO is a very bureaucratic organization. It's it's not a private company. Uh, Bicar is a private company. It's it's run specifically for a certain purpose. DRDO is a very very sprawling organization. We certainly need to reform the way these organizations are run. Cut down on all the extraneous staff. DRDO has a staff of how much? Thirty thousand, out of which only five thousand are scientists. So what are twenty five thousand non scientists doing? In DRDO, it's a huge drain of money. So we need to we need to do something about this. We need to reform these organizations. Maybe bring in the private sector. I think the brains, the talent, the capability, the know-how—it's all there in India. We need to find ways of leveraging that. Um, so either the government should should uh, give out contracts to private, uh, and and we know that India is now becoming a drone hub. You know, private uh, companies are manufacturing drones, not necessarily military drones, but the know-how they acquire in manufacturing commercial drones and developing the technology will definitely have military applications. So we are now building the capability to, to do these things. I think within a decade, India could very surprisingly become a nation at the forefront of some of these technologies. So what we can learn from nations that have done well in designing and developing drone technology is that we have to invest in this technology for a long period of time. We have to attract the best minds. We have to provide sufficient funds. And we have to understand that there are several generations of technology which are built on top of the previous generations. So uh, that's the thing. So I think now, now India is going in the right direction. Obviously, we can still do better. We can still do much better, but we are in the on the right track now. I think within a decade, India could be one of the major drone manufacturing nations, not just commercial drones, but actually military drones as well. Yeah. Daniel says, how long will it take for the Indian military industrial complex to mature? What other products and services could India export and achieve absolute monopoly on so as to become a civilizational giant? Well, military... Military technology has nothing to do with being... Um, well, yeah, of course, it all goes hands, hand in hand. You cannot become a strong civilization without having a powerful military industrial complex, which, which of course, lends itself to you becoming an in, in, imperial power as well. But yeah, so how long will it take for the Indian military industrial complex to mature? Well, when it comes to certain sectors, it's already very 
greatly mature. When it comes to rocket technology as an ISRO, it's definitely matured. It's been there for a long time. I think India has the capability within the next five years to develop a, 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 the kind of uh, rockets that, that uh, SpaceX has. SpaceX, uh, I think the first rocket flight was in 2006 or 2007, if I'm not mistaken. And in just 15 or so years, they've become, you know, they are launching rockets almost every week. And they have already developed one of the most powerful rockets the world has ever seen, the Falcon, whatever it is. Yeah, the mothership or whatever. I think India has the ability and the know-how in ISRO to, within the next five years, to develop a rocket of that caliber. We have it. We just don't, we just lack the funding. We just lack the political will for that. Uh, so when it comes to ISRO and space technology, rocket technology, I think we are already at a very mature phase. When it comes to missile technology, we are already extremely mature. When it comes to aircraft, fighter aircraft technology, we are intermediate at an intermediate step. We have now developed a fully world-class light combat aircraft. We still don't have, as far as we know, the, um, the jet engine technology, as far as we know. Uh, so now... We are at an intermediate step uh, stage. Once we have the uh, the Tejas Mark II and the AMCA, which would which would take a decade, then we will be at a more mature phase. So I think India is about a decade away from becoming a, a sophisticated and mature uh, aircraft manufacturer. When it comes to other technologies like submarines and all, I think we already have production lines that we can leverage. Certain things we'll have to learn on, on our own. So I would say that instead of buying, we already uh, have developed a nuclear submarine of our own, a whole uh, class of nuclear submarines. We are able to uh, build aircraft carriers on our, on our own. So in various domains, we have various differing degrees of maturity. I think within a decade or so, India could be a very mature, uh, could have a very mature military industrial complex. There are certain things India manuf can manufacture on its own, like how it serves and, and whatnot. Um, so yeah, we need to bring in the private companies into this, the private sector into this. There is so much... Uh, capacity available in the private sector. So that's something that needs to be leveraged. I think within a decade, we could have a very mature military industrial complex. And uh, we could become a major exporter of these things. You know, we are already exporting um, weapons to Azerbaijan. We may be exporting the, the Brahmos missile to various nations. Various nations are, are interested. We will. We are already exporting helicopters to various nations. We are uh, even the LCA Tejas was in contention in various places, but certain strings were pulled at some places. And other uh, South Korean uh, L uh, light combat aircraft won at the end of the day. This is more political than actually based on your capabilities. So India needs to first start manufacturing all of its own weapons for its own purposes. Once you can do that, you can start exporting things. So I think we are about a decade or so away. So I am very optimistic about this. Right. Akhand Bharat says, how can I learn Sanskrit if I can't read or write Hindi? I learn in, I live in Australia. Never needed to learn Hindi. And what makes Sanskrit such an excellent programming language? Why is it so similar to Greek and Latin? And how did people thousands of years ago formulate such a meticulously crafted language that is perfect for computers today? Also, what religious texts should I read if I haven't read any? And what is the best English translations? Okay, let's, let's, um, there are lots of questions in here. Let's talk about Sanskrit. Yeah. How can I learn Sanskrit if I can't read or write Hindi? Well, Sanskrit, the, the Sanskrit is a language and the medium in which it is written is now the Devanagari script. 
the Devanagari script. In the past, it was written in various other scripts, most likely the Sindhu Saraswati script, then the Brahmi script, then also the Kharashtu script, then the Sharda script. Lots and lots of scripts have been used to write Sanskrit. Today, the primary script is the Devanagari script. So if you want to learn Sanskrit, you need to learn the Devanagari script. You can do it in four hours. And then you practice for a week, it'll, you'll become very comfortable with the Devanagari script. There's no big deal. Learning a script is no big deal. I I remember as a kid, as a kid, as a college kid, I, I remember one day I had nothing to do. I was bored. I picked out a dictionary that I don't have here. It's called the American Heritage, American Heritage Dictionary. I went to a random page. It opened on the Arabic script and I decided to learn the Arabic script. And within a couple of hours, I was able to start writing my name and other things in the Arabic script. I now don't remember much of it, yeah, because I haven't bothered to practice. I think you can learn any script in a matter of hours, yeah? Especially one that is intrinsically your own. It's part of your heritage. So you need to learn the Devanagari script. It will take you just a matter of hours. And with that, you can start learning Sanskrit. Now the question is, what makes Sanskrit such an excellent programming language? Well, Sanskrit is not a programming language. A programming language has a very limited lexicon it, it needs a very limited number of characters yeah sanskrit is not a programming language it is not an excellent programming language uh, the thing about sanskrit is that it, it is a very uh, logical language it's almost algorithmic in nature it has what we call a completely formulated grammar which is the ashtadhyayi of panini no other natural language has this and it's the only example of a generative grammar yeah, it's the only language. It's the only example among all the natural languages that is that has a generative grammar. In contrast to other languages which have a descriptive grammar, right? So that's the difference between Sanskrit and and other languages. Sanskrit is a very uh, logical. It has a very logical algorithmic grammar. It has a generative grammar. No other languages. So a generative grammar is one in which on the basis of your very well-established lexicon and a set of very specific rules, the grammar can generate all acceptable expressions of the, of the language and only those expressions of the, of the language which are acceptable. Yeah. So that is the thing about Sanskrit. It's got what we call the Shabda Bodh, a systematic method of analyzing the meaning of any sentence. Yeah. So that's why we call Sanskrit a very... It's it's like a programming language, but it's not okay. It's it's a natural it's a natural language. It doesn't quite have a context specific grammar. The thing in machine translate. See, these days we have Google Translate, which is a machine translation. We translate from a source language to a, to a target language. Yeah, the most challenging application of of uh, natural language processing, which is machine translation of of source language to target language, is the logic the algorithm that we use. So when you have descriptive grammars, it's it's very hard. And that's why you see lots of times that Google Translate doesn't do a very good job. But when you have a completely formulated grammar, a generative grammar, then it becomes trivial for a, a machine translation system to translate accurately. Only Sanskrit has that. And that is something, so, and, and, and the and the works of Panini are the, well, the foundation of all linguistics today. Panini, in the even in the West, is recognized as the father of linguistics. So that is the reason why many people believe that uh, Sanskrit is, is an excellent programming language. No, it's not. Sanskrit cannot be used as a programming language. Of course, you can use Sanskrit expressions and terms in a programming language instead of your uh, Latin script 
that you use in 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 let's say python in python uh, syntax you could use devanagari script and sanskrit words in that you could use that that's not that's, that's that's quite easy to do yeah but it's not a programming language but it's an extremely logical language it's perfectly logical 100% logical there is no ambiguity yeah shabdabodh the systematic method of analyzing and of of parsing a language a sentence and analyzing the precise meaning of the sentence that only sanskrit has so that's why people say that people have the believe that sanskrit is a wonderful programming language it is not quite that but it is the the most scientific the most algorithmic the most precise language out there with the uh, with with the uh, most superior grammar if you want to say, if you want to call it that yeah uh, is it very similar to greek and latin no it's not greek and latin have i mean we have a whole bunch of languages which are called the indo-european language family sanskrit is the oldest of them all so yeah all of these languages share some similarities with sanskrit but if you speak greek it doesn't mean you will be able to understand any sanskrit at all yeah not necessarily or latin and greek and latin aren't as precise as 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 sanskrit right like i said the sanskrit has a, a completely formulated grammar and a generative grammar greek and latin don't have that so these are all languages that all, that all emerged out of the old language which may have been pre vedic sanskrit yeah but it is the classical sanskrit of panini that has these characteristics that no other language in human knowledge in human in existence or in world history have and that's why we call sanskrit devabhasha perhaps the language of the gods yeah okay saurabh says in ayodhya kand of ramayan there is a mention of the river saraswati as one of the rivers that were crossed by bharat in his journey from kk to ayodhya so can we say that ramayana is older than 2000 bc as this was the time when the great river saraswati dried up the ramayan is definitely older than 2000 bc so in the ramayan there are mentions of the saraswati like you mentioned like you say and in the mahabharat also there are mentions of the river saraswati we know that the saraswati dried out about 1500 or so bc most of it dried out by that time 1500 bc as 3 and a half thousand years before today we also know that the river saraswati started declining in in strength in intensity and in power in volume after about 5000 bc so the indian monsoon used to be really heavy in the past but beginning about 5000 bc the indian monsoon started declining gradually and monotonically gradual slow 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 decline yeah over centuries over thousands of years so the river was last in her prime around 7000 years before today and she mostly dried out by about 3 and a half thousand years before today so this is a period of about 3 and a half thousand years in which it it went from a full fledged great river to a river that is half dried out or mostly dried out yeah now in the ramayan the saraswati is mentioned as a great river she is not mentioned as a river that is in decline or a river that is drying out which means that the ramayan was written closer to 7000 years before today it was written closer to I don't know what the date is. I I forget. Uh, I think it's six thousand BC, which means eight thousand years before today. So the Ramayana was written closer to that time when the river was in her prime. It was not written closer to fifteen hundred BC when the river was mostly dried out. Which means the Ramayana is definitely way, way, way older than two thousand BC. The Ramayana could be, could have been the events of the Ramayana could have happened maybe somewhere around five thousand, maybe six thousand BC, quite likely. 
Yeah, but we don't have the correct dates as of now. It will happen in the future. We will get the dates. Right now, there's a lot of contention, confusion, a lot of uh, all that. Yeah, so we'll not go into the, that controversy. Uh, when it comes to the Mahabharat, it's it clearly uh, mentions the text clearly mentions the Saraswati as a river that is declining, that is that is in the process of drying out, which means the Rama the, the Mahabharat was written closer to 1500 BC, but before 1500 BC. Yeah, we don't know the exact dates. It could have been 300 uh, 3000 BC when the Mahabharat happened, could have been something else. We don't know quite what the date is. Various people have put have proposed various dates and they are very strongly adamant that my date is correct. Everybody else is wrong. I am not getting into the controversy. I have not ever gone on record say to say that this date is correct or that date is correct. So I have not uh, taken any sides in this. But yeah, to answer your question, the Ramayana is way, way, way older than 2000 BC. Way before that. Saurabh again. Sometimes I wonder about the ancient kings who lived during the Harappan times across India and maybe some of our kings conquered western lands, but unfortunately we don't have any documents. Yeah, most of our documents are gone, burned in the destruction of our great libraries, Takshashila, Naranda, Tilhara, Vikramashila, uh, Sharda Peet and so on and so forth. We have lost all of that information, but we still have the texts of the Ramayana, the Mahabharata, etc. In which, especially in the Mahabharata, there are mentions of extensive of many cities. There are lots of descriptions of pilgrimages and, and travels and journeys across India. There are descriptions of military campaigns and, and there are mentions of many kingdoms and cities. Yeah, So it would be interesting to try to uh, glean out, parse out some descriptive geographical information the, and then try to match it from what we see from, from the various uh, abandoned cities of that era that we do have on the map. I'm, I'm sure nobody has bothered or tried to do this seriously, especially from an academic perspective. I am sure that if if you, if, uh, you know, professors of history or academicians were to try to do this and spend a few years doing this, I'm sure a lot of uh, correlations could be found between the descriptions in these ancient texts and the cities that we do know exist in an abandoned form on the map, right? The various, uh, the various explored and unexplored archaeological sites that we know exist. The thousands of them that do exist. I'm sure that if we do a proper, detailed, systematic study, we could be able to start correlating some of these places and putting actual names on these cities that just exist as dots on the map. We don't even know what is the original name of Mohenjo-daro or Harappa or Rakigari or Birana. These are names that have been given after the 19th and 20th century. Yeah. Mohenjo-daro means the, the mound of the dead, apparently. Uh, Harappa, I don't know what it means, but yeah, these, these are Sindhi names and so on. So we don't even know the true names of these places, what the people of that time called those great cities. I think if we do a proper systematic investigation, yeah, using the best minds that we have at our disposal, or, or some of the best minds, we could be able to find some actual, you know, put some names on, on some of the cities. And if we are able to identify some of the cities with their actual names, we may be, even be able to know which kings at some point ruled over there and, and so on. It's It certainly can be done. It's just, it's just that our historians have never bothered to do, do this because they are busy doing something else. Okay, Brah bra says, why is the Indus Valley civilization often portrayed as a very egalitarian and non-violent society. Good, 
Good question. There are plenty of evidences of usage of bronze weapons in the Indus Valley. How can we derive the conclusion that lack of grandiose architecture and equal symmetrical buildings suggest that it was peaceful and egalitarian? Pretty weak evidence, in my opinion. Is this a conclusion by British archaeologists, a con consequence of communist revolution in Russia during the 1920s, which had presented a very tasteful narrative of equality? Okay, so uh, Bra says, See, let's analyze this logically. Bra says that there is the, the evidence that we have is pretty weak, in his opinion, or her, her opinion, um, that uh, the Saraswati Hindu civilization was egalitarian and non-violent. Okay, let's let's be let's have an open mind and be open to the possibility that maybe it was not egalitarian and it was maybe very violent, or maybe there was some violence. Yeah. So let's ask ourselves logically. Are there any other examples in, in the archaeological record of civilizations or cultures that have been known to be inegalitarian and violent? Yeah, so many. Lots and lots of such examples. Egypt is an example. Rome is an example. Uh, the Yamnaya invasion of Europe. There are so many examples in, in history. There are almost no examples of non-violent societies. Almost all societies in the archaeological record are known to be violent. So then you ask yourself, what are the characteristics of a violent society? You see evidence in the archaeological record of warfare, of battles, of massacres. You see that everywhere. You see arrowheads strewn around in a battlefield. You go to Hisarlik in Turkey, in Anatolia, and you will see that the city of Hisarlik has elements, you know, has, has, has sections, uh, chronological... Um, if you go, if you look at the sedimentary history, yeah, so the stratigraphic history, then you will see sections that there are there is soot and ash, and you will find lots of evidence of of deaths and 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 uh, arrowheads and and broken swords and shields and all that. You go to ancient England, you will see very clear example evidence in the archaeological record of the Viking invasions. Yeah, there is there are these mass graves that you find where all, all the bones are in one place and all the heads, all the skulls are in a different place, which is clear evidence of executions by decapitation. Yeah. So we know what violent societies look like in the archaeological record. Yes. That is very, that is not weak evidence. That is conclusive evidence. Do you find any of that evidence anywhere in the geographical uh, range of the Saraswati Hindu civilization. You find not one example of that. Do you call this weak evidence? I know that the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. We know that the people of the Saraswati Hindu region and era had armies. How do we know this? We know this because of the records of King Rimush of Akkad. He, he fought a war against the people of Illam and Marhashi. And he records that the, that the kingdoms of Illam and Marhashi were had a military alliance with the people of Meluha. Meluha is Saraswati Hindu. And, the, and, and there were soldiers from Meluha who participated in this war on the side of the people of Marhashi and, 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 uh, and Illam against the Akkadians. So despite finding no evidence of warfare in the Saraswati Hindu region for thousands of years in the archaeological record, we know they had soldiers. We know that they fought in wars and geopolitical events outside of India, outside of the Indian subcontinent. 
but we find absolutely not a single shred of evidence of warfare or violence in any of the Saraswati Sindhu archaeological sites. In the future, we may find something. Thus far, we have found nothing. I think that is extraordinarily strong evidence. Yeah, Egalitarianism. Okay. What about inequality and all that? We love to see inequality in India, right? What are examples of unequal societies? Unequal societies have... In an unequal society, most of the society's resources are controlled by a very small minority of the population. The aristocracy, the, 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 the nobility, whatever you want to call it, right? The warlords, the kings, the emperors. You see, and we know Europe has always been like this. We know that uh, Rome was like that. We know that Egypt was like this and so on. We know many other cultures that have been like this. And in all of these unequal, unequal societies and cultures, we find very specific characteristics of inequality. We find great palaces and uh, palaces that that uh, that uh, are built by the rulers to keep the, the 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 lower classes away, and obviously invaders away also. Um, we see examples of monumental architecture like the pyramids. The pyramids don't serve any social purpose. They, they serve the purpose of glorifying the kings and raising them to st the status of gods. In, this, in the case of medieval Europe, ancient Europe, you had the great palaces and forts and castles that showed off the status of these people as, as way above everybody else. Do you see any of these things in the Saraswati Sindhu region? In, in, in that period of history, the so-called Harappan era or Indus Valley era, you see none of that. You see none of that. It's it's very clear. Over here, it's not even absence of evidence. There's just nothing of that kind. And all the great buildings serve social purposes that serve the entire society. The greatest buildings are meeting halls. The great the largest buildings are meeting halls or or communal baths or 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 grain storage facilities and all that, which serve the society and the common people. So once again, I think it's very strong evidence of a more egalitarian society than what you see elsewhere. So that's what I have to say about this. Obviously, you can believe whatever you like. That is fine. But we are talking logic here. We are not talking emotions. We are talking. We we are having this conversation on the on the basis of the evidence that is available to us here in the Saraswati Sindhu region and outside in the rest of the world. There is a very clear contradistinction in the kind of evidence we have in the archaeological record, which is why even the West says that the so-called uh, Harappan civilization was almost utopian, no evidence of warfare, no evidence of class divides, all that. Even they claim it. Even they have to say it. So that's where we are. Rodrajit says, you always say that once the Central Asian people con considered India to be their ancestral home and adored and followed Indian culture, but then how and when did they start considering India a foreign place and attacked India countless times? Thank you. See, yes, I have said this because we know it, it was so. Uttar Kuru and Uttar Madra. So, uh, and even in 19th century German maps, you see the name Uttar Kuru and Uttar Madra. Yeah. Uttar Kuru was present in Tibet and Xinjiang, uh, temporarily occupied by China. That was Uttar Kuru, north of the Himalayas, north of the actual Kuru Mahajanapada in India. And Central Asia, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, all of that, Uzbekistan, all of that was called Uttara Madra. These were all, we know it 
from the archaeological record and other sources that these kingdoms which which resided in these places were all indian origin kingdoms we all know that it is you read in history textbooks of that and if you look at the history of that period it's more or less agreed yeah now so what happened so these these are not central asian peoples these were indian origin people who had gone out of india through wave after wave of migrations yeah and some of them were became nomadic we we call them the saka people the shaka people the west calls them skithians skithians in uttara kuru we had the tushara people and other people who were who are called the tokarians yeah so what happened is the question what happened is there were mag- migrations from other places so uh, the huns emerged out of uh, eastern eurasia north of china north of mongolia more or less the region of mongolia they were called the chinese called them the xionyu they became a warlike people they overwhelmed everybody else which forced the the kushans the the descendants of the tushara people and the skithians the shaka people to migrate westwards and southwards into india which gave us the the skithian uh, invasion of india and the kushan invasion of india and they all assimilated harmoniously because they were of indian origin the same culture essentially the same people now the huns took over central asia they established their own supremacy they were a whole different ethnicity the huns were a different ethnicity let's put the map on because so that we understand what's happening um where is the map we're looking at aini airbase let's uh, give me a second let's see the map to understand this better so we have india we know where it is yeah present day tibet and so called xinjiang was uttara kuru and central asia which is north of afghanistan which is tajikistan turkmenistan uzbekistan azerbaijan all that was uttara madra now the huns they emerged out of most likely east of mongolia or mongolia itself present day mongolia at that time it was not called mongolia right and they went they started sweeping across central asia so the kushans invaded india they were actually fleeing from the huns and then they established the an empire in india and over time they assimilated into the indian population the skithians also assimilated into the indian population so did the the indo greeks now so these indian origin kingdoms in central asia were replaced by hunnic kingdoms right and the ethnicity also got mixed because the huns were now the the overlords of most of central asia and there would be intermixing intermixing of the indian origin people and the hunnic people in central asia then you had the huns eventually be, they they reached europe they also invaded india parts of india we know that the hunnic invasions of india the shweta hunas and then you had the turkic uh, supremacy over central asia so the turks most likely were of hunnic origin but they became islamized and then there were new waves of invasions um, and they destroyed the indian origin heritage of central asia you will see ruins of of uh, hindu temples and buddhist stupas and monasteries all across central asia some of them have been replaced by uh, religious structures of the the religion of the of the turks yeah but all of that was replaced and the turks were again a different ethnicity they killed off most of the men of the original inhabitants of central asia and they took the women as slaves and that gave rise to a mixed race of people who now inhabit central asia and who have no connection anymore to indian culture that's why 
they started attacking India. And that's what that's the history. That's how it goes. So if you look at the people of Central Asia today, they may have a little bit of Indian ancestry. But if you look at the pe- the, the population of Central Asia 2000 years ago, they would have 80% Indian ancestry. That's what happened. So Indian ancestry was wiped out to a significant extent. And Indian culture was almost entirely wiped out from Central Asia. It's more about culture than DNA. Always remember, always remember, culture matters, DNA doesn't matter. Yeah, that is what happened. Okay, Rudrajit again. We know that in ancient times, many Indians went to Southeast Asia for trade and intermarried with the natives there and established many Indianized kingdoms. Can you name in, uh, some of those kingdoms and share some of their history? Okay, I'll just give a couple of names, names because otherwise you can have a six-month university level course on this. Not six months, you can have a two-year course on this. It's extremely uh, detailed history, very interesting history. Yeah. So let's take a look at some of that. Once again, I'm going to put Wikipedia on the screen. As always, please understand, please realize Wikipedia is not always, not necessarily reliable, especially when it comes to Indian history. But I am just putting it on the screen for the sake of convenience, for the sake of giving a very brief overview. One of the kingdoms we are talking about was Funan. Okay, Funan was in uh, southern Vietnam, southern Cambodia. Uh, The ancestors essentially of the Khmer people. So Funan kingdom was one of these. Uh, It was an Indianized state a network of states or a mandala located in, in uh, mainland Southeast Asia. Uh, so Funan goes back to about 2000 years before today. Uh, the first queen or the first ruler of Funan was Queen Soma. She is claimed to be the first monarch of Cambodia. She was the consort, the wife of Kondinya. Uh, Kondinya uh, was an Indian person, an Indian merchant ship was attacked by pirates led by Soma, the daughter of the chieftain of the local Naga clan. The, the entire story is there. You can read it up, read it up if you want. So who was Kondinya? Let's take a look at who Kondinya was. Um, he was the second monarch of Funan. He was the husband of, of Queen Soma. Um, and he, he was from Odisha. He was from Kalinga. We, we call it Odisha today. So we know that, Odi, that Kalinga had extensive and very ancient trade uh, trade relationship, relations with Southeast Asia, at least for the past 3,000 years. Even 3,000 years ago, merchants and sailors from, from Kalinga, from Eastern India, were traveling by ship uh, across the present-day, what's now called the Bay of Bengal, the Kalinga Sagar into Southeast Asia in trading there. So one of these people was a merchant, a Bra- apparently a Brahmin uh, from Kalinga. And he went to this place, uh, present-day Cambodia and Vietnam. He married the local uh, princess, Queen uh, Princess Soma, the Queen Soma. And they gave rise to the Funan Kingdom. It's a, this is about 2,000 years before today, right? So that's the story of, of, of Funan Kingdom. The successor state of, of Funan was called Chenla. The Chinese call it Chenla. This was again Hindu. Yeah, uh, and the successor of that essentially is the kingdom of Champa. That again goes back almost two thousand years. It was in existence from one ninety two A.D. to eighteen thirty two A.D. almost to almost nineteen hundred years, almost two thousand years roughly. Yeah, give or take. And uh, the the uh, what is now called the South China Sea was historically called the Champa Sagar, Champa Samudra, the, the the Sea of Champa. 
the Champa Sea. Yep. So the 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 kingdom or empire of Champa was again an Indianized Hinduized kingdom. Yeah. A mostly Shaivite kingdom. You will find lots of Shiva temples in this region. Uh, then you obviously cannot uh, neglect to talk about Java, Indonesia. Java again has a 2000 plus year old Indian Hindu history. Uh, the main island was Yavadweep, and you had so many of these rulers uh, Deva Varman, Purna Varman, Jaya Bhupati, Prabhu Maharaja Vangsa, Queen Shima. So they had their culture was very much Indian. They had queens, they had kings, women got women could also become the ruler of the country just as in India. In other cultures, you will never see that. Yeah. Um, and the Shailendra dynasty was a very significant dynasty. Yeah. Uh, it still rules Srivijaya in Sumatra and, and so much. It's a very extensive history. It's almost impossible to talk about it in, in just a few minutes. There are so many kingdoms and so many dynasties. Um, the Majapahit Empire was the was the imperial phase of the of, of, of Indonesia. It was a Hindu phase, obviously. It was the greatest, it was the most glorious phase of Indonesia's history. They still remember that with, with great fondness, and they consider the people of Indonesia consider that to be the pinnacle of Indonesian history, uh, and so on. So there's a whole it's an enormous amount of history to unpack. There's a good book by R.C. Majumdar, I believe, an old book, but that throws a lot of light on on the Indianized kingdoms. He calls it colonies or whatever, for, for whatever reason. He, he, he wrote this in a different era when they thought about everything as a colony. But yeah, those were Indianized kingdoms. Those were not colonies of India, of India in Southeast Asia. And of course, this extends way beyond Southeast Asia. Uh, even the Philippines had Indianized kingdoms. Some of their kings had Chola ancestry. Yeah. And this continued until the Portuguese destruction of, 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 um, of the Philippines and their culture. And then the Philippines were Christianized forcibly by the, by the Portuguese. So you had uh, Indian culture all across Southeast Asia, all the way to the Philippines. And of course, in, 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 in Thailand, in Burma, uh, Thailand and Burma were called Suvarnabhumi even two and a half thousand years before today. yeah, And of course, in China, in, in, in Korea, all the way up to Japan. And of course, westwards also. Very, very, very detailed and involved history. But I, I hope I've thrown a little bit of light on this and evoked hopefully some curiosity from those of you who are interested in this. So look it up. Check out Arsi Majumdar's book on, on this period of, of Southeast Asian history. And there are lots of online articles also that you can use for uh, reading more about this. Samrat says, Buddha was born in Nepal, sir. <laughs> Look, if you want to say that Buddha was born in Nepal, have you heard of Hannibal? Hannibal Barca? Hannibal Barca was a Carthaginian general uh, and he fought against Rome. Very successfully, may I say. So Hannibal was from Carthage. Where is Carthage find, found today? The ruins of Carthage are found near the present-day city of Tunis. You can see Carthage here. It's, it's all ruins. The Romans destroyed Carthage eventually. Yeah. Carthaggio delinda est. Carthage must be destroyed. Mm -hmm. So that happened afterwards. But uh, Hannibal Barca was one of the greatest generals of Carthage. He invaded Rome. Uh, uh, yeah. Rome, present day Italy, very successfully. So you could claim from that perspective, you could claim that Hannibal was Tunisian. Would it be accurate to claim that Hannibal was Tunisian? Because Carthage is 
located in present day tunisia it's it's ridiculous to say that hannibal barca was tunisian yeah that's wrong and similarly it's kind of ridiculous to not kind of it's very ridiculous to say that lord karna of the mahabharat era was a bangladeshi yes he ruled over angadesh which is now uh west bengal and bangladesh historical bengal but is it right to call lord karna a bangladeshi or a bengali is it it's not similarly the the present day nation state of nepal originates in the kingdom of nepal which goes back to the times of prithvinarayan shah so when did he live 1700s i believe so prithvi let me google it i don't remember dates please okay no, so don't mind it prithvi narayan shah when did he live 1700s so he established the kingdom of nevar which is now called nepal that's just 300 or so years ago there was no nepal before that the region always existed it was always part of various kingdoms of indian kingdoms and indian, indian empires it was part of the kushan empire it was part of the mauryan empire it was part of of various other empires it was part of the gupta empire as well in so many empires it was part of various mahajanapadas of india it was always indian there was no nepal before the 1700s the nation state the kingdom of nepal originates in the conquests of prithvinarayan shah in that small region in the 1700s before that there was no concept of a kingdom of nepal and the nation state of nepal came much later so just like hannibal barca was not tunisian just like king karna of the mahabharat era was not bangladeshi similarly lord buddha was not nepalese of course you many of you may not agree that's fine logic and emotions are hold to different things and they should not be they should not be mixed but well there we go ah science karan says how does a black hole evaporate and where does it evaporate and why does it evaporate see black holes have temperature a black hole has a temperature it's called the hawking temperature and any object that has a temperature which is hot any hot object radiates it radiates so black holes radiate a uh, black body radiation they radiate particles that and and radiation that form the black body spectrum and the temperature of a black hole it's called the hawking temperature and because of the temperature there is a certain rate at which a black hole emits radiation the hotter the black hole is the faster it emit, emits radiation and the smaller a black hole is the hotter it is yeah so there is a certain rate at which a black hole emits radiation it's proportional to the inverse of the square of the mass of the black hole 1 upon m squared proportional to 1 upon m squared m is the mass of the black hole so the smaller a black hole the faster it emits radiation and this is called evaporation so that's how it happens now what's inside a black hole we don't quite know we can approximate we can construct a theoretical black hole from the perspective of quantum mechanics using by 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 approximating a black hole is a bag of let's say photons you can even you can even construct a black hole as a bag of of strings a fuzz ball whatever and you can play around with the math but black holes evaporate because they are hot they have a temperature the smaller a black hole is the hotter it is and the faster it evaporates or emits radiation and eventually it explodes into nothingness 
and where does it evaporate? It evaporates right where it is. Assuming it's a Schwarzschild non-radiating, non-rotating black hole, it's going to be completely spherical. It's going to uh, evaporate, which means emit radiation all around its surroundings, and it will go go outside, outwards. That's how it goes. Yeah. The madman, the madman says, can a collision of two neutron stars create gravitational waves? How are the gravitational waves even detected? A collision of anything creates gravitational waves. So when two neutron stars collide, they're going to give rise to not gravitational waves, but a gravitational tsunami, an enormous gravitational wave. When two black holes collide, they're going to give rise to a gravitational wave tsunami. It's not a small wave. It's a, it's a, it's a huge tsunami. Enormous, enormous wave with an enormous amplitude. Yeah. And even when there's a black hole versus neutron star collision, there is a gravitational wave or tsunami that is emitted. Even when I punch my palm with my fist that way, that's going to give off gravitational waves. But those are going to be very small, tiny, tiny ripples in the fabric of space time. When I do this, it just emits in incredibly small ripples ripples in the fabric of space-time. But when two enormous massive objects collide, it creates it creates a huge tsunami in the fabric of space-time. And today the gravitational wave detectors that we have are only able to detect enormous tsunamis. They can't detect small ripples in the fabric of space-time. So how are gravitational waves detected? Um, the instrument that we have is called LIGO. Uh, soon an, uh, an Indian version of LIGO is going to come up. It's going to be called INDIGO. What is uh, what is LIGO like? Uh, LIGO essentially is a, gravid, is, is a Michelson interferometer. Let me uh, put that on the screen, what that is. Uh, let's quickly do this. LIGO essentially is an enormous Michelson. Kelson interferometer. That's what it is. So it has two arms which are uh, at right angles to each other. This is the essential schematic. Yeah, and uh, the uh, the arms are very long, several kilometers long. Yeah, and what and the, the light is crossed. And if, if if there is a if if the two paths, the two paths are in the the distance between the two uh, of the lengths of the two arms are exactly equal. Yeah. And if a gravitational waves, uh, if a gravitational wave uh, is incident on this apparatus, then there's going to be torsion. It's going to twist the fabric of space-time, and then the, what? What the, the consequence of that is that the lengths of the two arms become unequal, and that's going to give rise to interference fringes in the laser light that is that is being uh, split and then recombined. Yeah, so that is the basic uh, basic. Uh, the, the basic construction of, of the LIGO interferometer. So LIGO is extremely, extremely sensitive. It can detect a very small change. It can detect, detect a, ch a change in the distance between its mirrors, which is about one ten thousandth of the width of a proton. A proton is a subatomic particle which is found inside most atoms, inside all atoms, sorry. yeah. Even the hydrogen atom has a nucleus which is a proton. So the, the LIGO detector can detect a change in distance between its mirrors. Which, which is as small as one ten thousandth the width of a proton, which is equivalent to measuring the distance between between Earth and the nearest star, Alpha Centauri, which is about 4.2 light years away, measuring the distance to an accuracy smaller than the width of a human hair. So that's the kind of thing it is. 
and that's why we are able to detect uh, gravitational waves. I believe about 90 or so gravitational waves have been detected thus far, and uh, there are various um, runs that LIGO goes through. Thus far, we have detected about 90 or so. The first one was, I believe, in 2015, and that was a momentous occasion in the history of experimental physics. Right? Rodrajit, uh, lots of questions by our friend Rodrajit. I have noticed that nowadays people are showing so much attraction for Chinese, Korean and Japanese culture, but people don't seem to be much interested or attracted to Indian culture, which has a huge impact on the previous mentioned cultures. What? Which has had a huge impact on these other cultures that you have mentioned. Yeah, it's, it's, what's your take on this? Yeah, it's, it's true. Um, why are people showing so much well, why are people so attracted? It's because of the media. It's because of the entertainment industry. It's because of Hollywood. And then Indian Indian entertainment copies Hollywood. That's what Indian entertainment does. If you look at all the various entertainment uh, shows like Indian Idol or whatever, they are copying shows that were started in the West. Indian Idol is a knockoff of American Idol. Indian music today is a knockoff of American music or, or Western music. A.R. Rahman in the 1990s, started using electronic instruments and copying Western music. And Indians thought it's a very huge innovation. And then Bollywood started copying that. And today you don't have any Indian instruments or Indian styles left in Bollywood and, and mainstream music anymore. This was all started by A.R. Rahman, by aping Western music, by using electronic instruments, which were imported from the West. And, and, and much of the influence comes from Hollywood. Now, Hollywood is very... <laughs> I think I've said this before. See, if if you look various Hollywood, if you watch various Hollywood movies, they will glorify and, and celebrate cultures from across the world. Take a look at various Pixar movies like Moana, for instance. Moana celebrates Polynesian culture. If you watch the, the Pixar or Disney movie, I don't know which it is, Coco, Coco, which came recently, it celebrates indigenous Mexican Aztec culture, the Day of the Dead, yeah? Dio des Muertos or whatever it is. If you watch Aladdin, it celebrates Arabian Arabic culture. If you watch Mulan, it celebrates Chinese culture. If you watch the latest Mummy movie, The Mummy, it celebrates Chinese culture. The original Mummy movie celebrates Egyptian culture. The Wakanda movie celebrates African culture. Uh, if you watch Avatar, the first Avatar movie, it celebrates to an extent Native American culture, indigenous culture. If you watch movies like The Last of the Mohicans, The Dances, of, Dances with Wolves, it celebrates Native American culture. In 1972, there was a meeting between uh, President Nixon of the US and, and Mao, the dictator of China. And Mao and Nixon decided to open up China to American investment and to American influence. The next year, Enter the, Enter the Dragon was released and Chinese culture became a hit in the West. Yeah, If you watch shows like Silicon Valley, there's this character called Dinesh, uh, who's one of the main characters in Silicon Valley. He's depicted as a Pakistani. Yeah, not Indian. If you watch movies like Thor, Thor, Love and Love and Summer, Love and Thunder, something, you have all the gods in the in the world who are depicted in this one scene, the pantheon of gods from across the world, but no Indian gods, and they show Zeus and Thor as separate gods when actually they are the same god. And of course, we have the celebration of Japanese culture, Japanese anime, manga. We have the celebration of K-pop in 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 the Western world. But you never see any celebration of Indian culture, ever. Why is that? Because all the other cultures that are celebrated are defeated cultures. These are cultures that have been defeated by the West. In 1972, they started considering China also to be a defeated culture because China was forced to open up to the US 
because they were facing great threats from the USSR, yeah, dating back to the 1960s. So they see China as a defeated culture, and of course, there's a lot to money, a lot of money to be made from China. So they celebrate Chinese culture, and all the other cultures I specified are all cultures the West considers to be defeated cultures. It's only India that has thus far not been defeated in the past 1,000 years. Indian culture has refused to die. That's why they refuse to celebrate Indian culture. Any depiction of Indian culture, 1960s onwards, is going to be negative in the West, if it is at all ever depicted. And what's funny is that there are many people in the West who practice what you could call Hinduism. yeah, But they are always depicted as Buddhists. Take the example of Tina Turner. She is depicted as a Buddhist. Take the example of Steve Jobs. You go to Wikipedia and search for Steve Jobs, they're going to portray him as a Buddhist. They will say he practiced Zen Buddhism. Do you know that when Steve Jobs died, he had a picture of the of the Indian Hindu guru Neem Karoli Baba on his bedstead. bedstead. He had a blanket of Neem Karoli Baba with him and he had a book called Miracle of Love which is a collection of stories and teachings about Neem Karoli Baba right next to him when he died. So clearly he was influenced by a Hindu guru and he and he believed in what we call Hinduism. And yet he is depicted as a Buddhist. Yeah. Uh, so that's how it is. It's be, they, there is there is a blanket whitewashing and, and, and omission of, of any representation of, uh, representation of Indian culture in Western media, in the Western entertainment world complete blanket deletion right they just don't show it or if they show it they show it in a very negative manner uh, slum dog whatever the movie was extremely negative portrayal of india if you look at the news it's all negative any mention of indian culture is negative there is a there is this festival in in northern india, in nepal i believe in which they slaughter buffaloes and maybe on in in one day they slaughter maybe a, a few thousand buffaloes so that is portrayed as incredibly barbaric do you know how many millions or billions of cattle are slaughtered in an extremely inhumane way in north america what is the ritual sacrifice of 5000 buffaloes compared to that and yet they portray this is extremely primitive and barbaric but what the west does is beautiful so these are the reasons why because of the complete absence of any depiction or representation of Indian culture in the entertainment industry and media and whatever is there is negative. That's why people are now, they now feel, especially in India, that Indian culture is inferior, is primitive. They are ashamed of, of, of speaking about Indian culture and they, they try to, to copy the West, to imitate the West. And that's why they are very attracted to whatever is shown in a positive light, like Chinese culture or Korean culture or Japanese culture or whatever else. It is brainwashing through suggestion. Yeah. That's how it is. And today you see, yeah, okay, let's not go there. <laughs> That's enough. <laughs> All right, let's, what else shall we take? Daniel says, what, which countries have the right to mine lunar minerals and, and metals? Do nations with lunar missions have exclusive rights to those things? Or will those be shared with interested nations as well? Look at past history. NASA, NASA went to the moon. They brought back several kilos of, kilos of moon rocks. Who owns those moon rocks? They own it. Do they share it with anybody else? They may share with certain nations, those who are their vassals. Have they shared any of that with India? I'm not sure. I'm, I don't think so. Um, the Chinese recently went to the moon. They, they sent a Chang'e rover to the moon. They, I think they brought back some, some samples or they may be in the process of bringing back samples. Those are exclusively Chinese. 
so which nations have the right to mine lunar minerals and materials and metals those who can reach there yeah no one can stop them and they they have uh, they are under no obligation of sharing that to share that with anybody else that's why i keep saying india needs to ensure it becomes one of the major space faring nations in the 21st century yeah it is extremely important it is essential that india does it india should not be left behind in the space race yeah because space is the next frontier space is like they say in star trek the final frontier all right uh, let's take a couple more questions um, kailash parvat rudrajit says my goodness how many questions by rudrajit uh, kailash parvat the land of lord shiva in one of the holiest places for all dharmic uh, paths is currently occupied by china is it not shameful it is unacceptable and this situation will be rectified not far from today it has to be rectified it does not belong in anyone's hands except those who who respect dharmic culture tibet is fine but not china mazar says how to handle failure i attempted a civil services example exam similar to upsc a couple of months ago the results came out a few days ago and i couldn't i just couldn't make it by a small margin any advice see look at the, take a look at the people you admire the most the most successful people in the world i can guarantee you that the people who are now considered to be the most successful people in the world have failed more times than any average person you cannot succeed without learning from failure but only if you can learn from failure constructively so how to handle failure take it first of all take it as a learning experience secondly you should not have only one option in life you place all your eggs in one basket if it doesn't work you're doomed it should not be like that you should have multiple backup options let's say your upsc was plan a you should also have plan b plan c plan d and in the long run what you make in the long run life is long life is really long you you because of today's advances in medical technology and all that most people i think now can expect to live 100 years if they are, if they are reasonably lucky and if they take good care of themselves so let's say you fail at something in your 20s it should not dishearten or discourage you there is a lot more you can do in your life you have a long long life ahead of you so always have multiple options multiple plans always know you have to first understand yourself and what you are best at what you will be good at in, in life have a 10 year objective break it up into a five year into five year objectives and, and a one year objective and whatever your one year objective is you should have quarterly objectives also and you should have multiple goals not just one goal if you fail at one thing learn from it but don't be discouraged and that should not be the end of everything you should always have backup plans so that's how you handle failure failure is an opportunity to learn you should analyze why whatever happened happened why did it happen what were the 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 steps you took that could have contributed to your whatever you call failing yeah so that's what you do so always have multiple backup plans always have a big goal and if it doesn't work this way we'll do it that way that's how we do it so be positive understand you've got a long life learn from the best people that you admire i can guarantee each of them failed more times than most people will ever fail in in one life that's how it goes so it's all about learning and always keep on advancing and always have multiple plans that's what you do all the best sir all the best um 
Mingu says, I want to know how your brain stores so many facts and information, any secrets, and please do more science podcasts. I don't know. I just have access to one brain, and it is the way it is. I don't know whether it... St- I don't think I memorize lots of stuff. I, I What I see is patterns, and you can only see patterns if you go through a lot of information. So you're going to read a lot. I read. You can watch podcasts. You can learn in any way you want. I don't think I store lots of facts and information. Oh, I only stare, store what I find interesting. And that's what I talk about. I don't f- talk about things I don't find interesting. So uh, I don't know. I don't know what secrets are there. For me, there's no secret. I'm just who I am. I've always been this way. Uh, I don't think I am great at memorizing stuff. I forget lots of things. I have to Google it. Specific names and dates and all that. I forget that all the time. But I overall understand the big picture. So that's how it works for me. Um, please do more science podcasts. I think this year I'm going to do way more science podcasts this year, starting the coming week itself. Yeah. This may be the year of science on this channel. Of course, other things as well, but I'm going to reorient my focus more towards science to certain some, some extent this year. Yeah. Uh, Sri Balram Putin says, is human body symmetrical? My right hand is slightly bigger than the left one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> listen, no human... <laughs> right versus left. Say, so listen, no human body is perfectly symmetrical. Okay? If, if, a, if a body is perfectly symmetrical, it's unnerving to see that. It doesn't happen. It's, it doesn't happen in nature. Right hand, left hand, right foot, left foot, whatever else, right, right, left. <laughs> you're you're always going to have some asymmetry, even in the human face. Yeah. So don't worry if your one hand is bigger, one is smaller. It's it's perfectly natural. You can never have perfect symmetry anywhere. Um, Ronald Rajmanyu says, where did the Sakas and Skeetians go? Where did you take them? Please give them back before the date of 3rd January. The Scythians are in my custody and they are not going anywhere. Is what it is. <laughs> okay, let's briefly take some questions from, um, from the live chat. Briefly, five minutes. Do we have any questions <laughs> from, from the live chat? Um, why does Sikhism have a caste system even if it was made to counter caste system? Sikhism was not made to counter any alleged caste system in Hinduism. Sikhism is very much, very much part of Hinduism. Sikhi came out of a desire to evict the foreign occupiers of India out of India. It was a more militaristic uh, path that certain Indians took. Hindus. I don't see any difference between the real Sikhi Sikhism and and any other dharmic panth or path of of uh, of India, yeah, and so so that's so the belief that Sikhism was made to counter the caste system is absolutely ridiculous. Sikhism or Sikhi, its its sole purpose was to free India, liberate India from the foreign occupiers, the brutal barbarians who were destroying India and destroying Indian culture and committing a genocide in India. That was the only objective of Sikhi, not to reform Indian society or or counter some imaginary caste system or any of that. Please understand this. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Um, Let's see. How many failures have I had in my career? Plenty. Plenty. And here I am. (laughs) Everybody fails in lots of things. What's the big deal? You've got to learn. You've got to move on. Yeah. So 
most people will fail at multiple things and it's perfectly fine perfectly fine but the main thing is keep going forward keep working hard and stay positive all uh, right what else do we have <laughs> IDK says Pakistan Taliban created another government in Pakistan. How will it affect Pakistan and India? So they've set up a parallel government, shadow government. It's going to be interesting times for Pakistan. How will it affect India? It will not affect India negatively. That's much what I'm. That's how much I can tell you. Karan <laughs> says, uh, <clears throat> "How can we say that Earth is tilted when it is in space and no base below it? It is not tilted with respect to up or down. It is tilted like this with respect to the plane of the solar system. The solar system, you can think of it as a is a, is a flat disk, more or less. So, if you look at the flat disk of the solar system, all the planets and objects." essentially go around the sun in the same plane more or less you take that plane and then you see the uh, inclination of the uh, the rotation of the earth it's inclined with respect to that plane that is what we mean when we say that the earth is tilted all right right anything else <clears throat> um is the uh, was the early Harappan civilization a contemporary of the Mahabharata era? I think there was definitely some kind of overlap between the Saraswati Sindhu phase of Indian history and the Mahabharata era. Yeah, but we don't know exactly what it was because we don't know the date exact date or even the millennium in which the Mahabharata happened. Like I said, lots of people have put up claims. I am not favoring any claim. Yeah, but I am. It, it's pretty much sure that the Saraswati Sindhu phase of Indian history was contemporaneous with with. Some part of it was contemporaneous with the Mahabharata era. All right. Um, what else? What else? What else? Ayan says, how to manage time and mobile addiction. If you have big objectives that, that obsess you, if you have a big 10-year goal, and you have a big 5-year goal, which is part of the 10-year goal, and if you have a big 2023 goal, and if you are really invested in that, if you're really obsessed with that, you will not have the time to look at your mobile phone and waste time here and there. You'll be working towards that because it really matters to you. It means something to you, something very important to you. You need to have that. You need to have some kind of obsession in life. Without that, you're going to waste your time. I, I, I mean, you know, I don't even have the time to watch podcasts. So you need to have something like that. Then it's not an issue. You will not even want to look at the mobile phone and scroll up like people do all the time and all that. Yeah, and time management is an art. It, it's it's something that takes time to learn. The main thing is don't have too many tasks in a day. Only have your real work is like three four hours a day maximum where you can really focus. So that is something you can split across only one or two tasks. So in a day you should have maybe three main tasks, three main things you're working on, and everything else should not be given as much importance as you otherwise would. So be focused and, and you need to evolve your own system of time management. Obviously, there are lots of different ways of doing it. You can read about it in various, various books or see it on, online, various methods, various systems. There is something called time boxing. There are other things as well. So yeah, you got to find what suits you best. Everybody is different. Everybody will be able to manage time optimally in different ways. Huh, all right. What else do we have? Um, are Brahmins Jews as said by something Bam Bamsef? What <laughs> I don't know who says that, but those people need to have their heads examined, whoever it is. 
I don't know what BAMSEF or whatever else is, but yeah. Okay, I think we are done for today. Two hours, 10 minutes. So we're going to end the session today over here. Thank you, as always, for all the wonderful questions. Very interesting questions always that I get. Some very new ones. Yeah. So, yeah, thank you. And I wish you a very successful and happy 2023. And I will see you in next week's live streams. And we're going to do some podcasts as well. And we're going to focus on science a little more this year. So uh, thank you very much. Take care. And I will see you very soon in the next live stream. Bye.